Father, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful, God, that your fundamental disposition towards us um, is kindness, is, is mercy, uh, is pity, is care, is, is tender compassion. And, and we see that uh, throughout Scripture. We, we see that uh, in the storyline of Scripture where you created us to know you and, and things were good and we fell. And God, you didn't turn your back on us, but you pursued us. And you unfolded the, the plan of redemption that culminates in Jesus, who has come for us, who has willingly given his life. He's laid it down and taken it back up uh, in order to save us from, from our sin, to, to rescue us from death, to save us from Satan, and to restore us to you, to achieve a work that we could never achieve on our own. And so, God, we praise you for the work of your son, Jesus. We ask that as we come to your word, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make our minds and our hearts humble and contrite, make us uh, people who tremble under the authority and truth of your word, people who, who leave this place shaped by your word, people who leave this place worshiping Christ, in, in awe of Christ, moved by Christ, stirred up with love for Christ. Would you come and would you do that, God? That's what we need. We, we need our eyes to be lifted from our burdens and to see how Christ is, is with us, is for us, And so, God, come and do that in our hearts, in our minds as we open up your word. You've promised that your word never comes back void. It always, always accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it out to achieve. So, God, would your word accomplish incredible purposes in our hearts this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in our series on, in, uh, on Exodus, and, and we're looking at how God is, is finally beginning to act in a visible and decisive way to deliver his people from captivity to Egypt. That God's people are in captivity, even though long before God had promised that he would make them their own nation, they would be in a land, they would have God's presence, God would dwell with them, and they would be a blessing to the nations, a light to the nations. And part of that light to the nations was that the nations would, would see God with his people and say, oh, that's God, that's the one true God. All sounds great until God's people get trapped and enslaved and put under the, the yoke of brutal oppression in Egypt. So God's people are no longer a light to the nations. They are a joke to the nations. God is not seen anywhere. God's people are wondering, God, where are you? And everything is looking bleak. But now God has raised up Moses, who is going to deliver his people. There is kind of this showdown between God and the world power, Pharaoh, and God is beginning to act. And, and Moses has gone before Pharaoh and said, the Lord says, let my people go. And Moses essentially says, who is your God that I should listen to him? Why should I listen to the God of the Hebrew slaves? Who, who is he that I would listen to his voice? I'm the world power. And so God is beginning now to show that he is God, Pharaoh is not, so that both God's people can see who God is and be free, but also so that Egypt can see who God is and be set free. I want you to think about, before we read the passage, we're going to look at the first half of the 10 plagues. You probably have seen a movie about this at some point in your life. This is stuff of epic proportion, which is why when Hollywood runs out of an idea, every 10 years they're like, well, 
let's just do something with Moses. And so they're just going to do that, and then they'll do Power Rangers, right? When they run out of ideas, they're going to go back to what's epic and what's familiar, free intellectual property, built-in audience, right? And so this text that we're going to look at is, is, is of epic proportions. Uh, it's this big, gigantic, kind of epic story. And what God is doing here is he's making himself known. That's what God is doing. Now, I want you to think about this. Use your imagination a little bit. I want you to imagine, just imagine an ordinary Egyptian woman at this time that she's been hearing. She's seen the, the Hebrew people enslaved building bricks. She's seen them, but she doesn't know them. She's heard about Pharaoh who used to live in, in, in uh, uh, excuse me, she's heard about Moses who used to live in Pharaoh's palace, but then, then identified with the Hebrews. She's heard all this stuff. She's heard how Moses has come to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And, and she's laughed with all her, her friends and, and neighbors and family about how, how the, 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 the Hebrew slaves and their little God are, is going to do something. It's been all talk. It's been all talk. She's aware of it, but it's not registered on her radar. She doesn't worship God. She doesn't know God. Egypt has 100 plus gods, so she bows down to them. So she's heard of the Lord, but it's all talk, no big deal. And then our text happens. Keep that woman in mind. Let's read our text. Let's see what God is doing next to make himself known, not just to his people, but also to Egypt and through that to us. Exodus 7, 14. We're going to read a big chunk. We'll have it up on the screen. If you have your Bible in front of you, we're going to be in 7, 14, uh, the first plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's standing out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So we're going to see a cycle as we continue reading that. God is going to 
Say Pharaoh, go, or say Moses, go to Pharaoh, say the Lord is telling you to let my people go that they may serve me, that they may know me, that they may worship me, that they may dwell with me. And Pharaoh's going to resist and there's going to be a sign, there's going to be a plague, there's going to be a way that God makes himself known. Moses and Aaron, for once in their life, they're going to obey immediately, right? It's not hard work, lift the staff, put it over the water, they're going to obey immediately and a sign is going to happen. And we're going to see the response of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and how God is making himself known in this way. 8.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the house of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and upon your people and on all your servants." And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up upon the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyard, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. There's a life verse for you if you're looking for scripture to memorize. (laughs) But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and on beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Now, this is important. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of the Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said to him, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. 
So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go out to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the fields, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Notice God is giving opportunity, invitation, time to turn. Verse 6, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of Egypt died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, he sent a messenger, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Maybe we'll just read the whole book. Just, say, just read the whole book. It'll be better than the sermon. So we hear, right, the epic proportion and nature of what God is doing. And there's a couple things that we need to see, and we talked about these last week, but there are a couple things we need to set the table with before we can really begin to understand this text. What God is doing here in this passage is God is making himself known to Egypt. He's making himself known to Israel. He's making himself known to the world. And he's making himself known by dismantling the idols of Egypt. He's dismantling the idols of Egypt in order to demonstrate that he alone is God. The plagues, you can think about it like this. The plagues are essentially one, uh, one major lesson in a, in a classroom uh, 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 of activities. Or, or think of it this way. The, the plagues are this theater in which God is going to put himself on display. The plagues are these, these different days in a classroom that are teaching one main objective, that God is God and there is no other. That's what God is making clear. And so what God is doing here is he's showing that I'm God over creation. I'm the one that controls all the elements. I'm the one who controls the Nile. I'm the one who controls the frogs. I'm the one who controls the livestock. I'm the one who controls life and death. I'm the one who controls the universe. I'm the one who upholds everything within the power of my hand. Now, why is God showing this? Is it because he's insecure? Is it because he's looking for people to worship him so he can feel complete? Or is he, as C.S. Lewis says, uh, some would, would see this as an old woman fishing for compliments? Is that what God is doing? Well, no, God is trying to make himself known to Egypt that they would turn to him and know him. God is putting himself on display. Some people would ask, well, why didn't God just set his people free immediately and not do the 10 plagues and just have that happen in a jiffy? Well, think about it like this. We talked about this last week. Think about what happens if God makes it happen like this. If Moses goes to Pharaoh 
the world power who's put the Hebrew people under slavery, who has also instituted the systematic killing of their infants in, in chapter one and two. If, if Moses goes to Pharaoh and the first time Moses says, let my people go, Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, okay, see ya. What's Egypt going to say? What are the nations going to say? What's the world going to say? Who are they going to talk about? Who are they going to recognize? Who are they going to praise? Pharaoh. They say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh was nice today. Pharaoh was incredible. Oh my goodness. Pharaoh went from murdering people to letting them go free. Look at the change of heart. Pharaoh is incredible. And guess what? They're going to continue to bow down to Pharaoh. Now what happens though, instead, if God does this, Pharaoh, who is almost the epitome of evil up to this point in scripture, what if instead of that, God shows that no, Pharaoh has done evil. I'm going to judge it. And in the process of judging it, I'm going to make myself known. And I'm not only going to just save my people, I'm going to save people out of Egypt as well. Now what is Egypt going to talk about? Now what are the nations going to talk about? Now who are people going to look to? They're going to look to their creator. There's a massive difference. So that is what God is doing. He is making himself known. And the way that he's making himself known through these plagues is he's making himself known by dismantling the idols of Egypt dismantling the idols of Egypt. Well, why is he doing this? Because idolatry is a, is a universal problem. The worshiping of things instead of God is a universal problem. And when it comes down to this, we need to understand that Pharaoh is actually someone who would fit in very well in modern times. Pharaoh is somebody who has no problem with Israel worshiping the Lord. He just has a problem if their worship of the Lord has an imposition upon him. Which is why in chapter 5, when Moses says, let my people go, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Essentially, Pharaoh is saying, you have your God, keep him over there. I am essentially a deity. I have my gods. Let me do my thing. Just leave me alone. Stay subject to me. But God says, no, that, that's not how it's going down. And so what God does is he's going to dismantle the idols of Egypt in order to show Egypt that he is God, that they may receive his mercy. Now think about the Nile, the first plague that we see, the Nile is turned into what? Blood, right? It's turned into blood. So the first thing that we see is the economic source of life. The most essential thing about Egypt is being shown as being under the hand of God. Their life source is being displayed as not being a thing in and of itself, but being something under the hand and power of God. The Nile was a uh, representative of many gods for Egyptian culture. The god Happy, which was meant to help make you happy and give you the good life. That is seen as being part of the Nile as where Egyptians would go. Think of the woman that we used our imagination to think of, right? This is where she would go and she would make sacrifice. She'd make sacrifice, she'd offer prayers, she'd do her thing there in order, hoping that the god Happy would bring her fulfillment to have the good life. And so God is systematically dismantling idols of Egypt. We see this with the, with the Nile turned into blood. We see this with the frogs, right? The, the, the god Hiquet, this is a, a god represented in frogs. And, and, and God is, is, is showing that, hey, these frogs are not gods. They're just frogs. And so I'm going to spread them everywhere. And then they're all going to die. Livestock represented as a god of fertility. Imagine a god of fertility and seeing the god of fertility dead all around you. What would you think? I guess that's not the God of fertility, right? So this would be these eye-opening moments where your very sense of idols, your, the thing that you bow down to, you're seeing it as exposed. 
you're recognizing that the thing that you built your life on, the thing that you trust in, the thing that you bow down to, the thing that you put all your eggs in the basket for, it's not really able to hold the weight of what you've placed upon it. Have you ever had this happen to you? Where you've put your trust in someone, something, you've recognized, wow, I've really built my whole life around this thing, and then it crumbles before your eyes? Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever seen something that you've realized, oh, I'm actually worshiping this thing, and it is letting me down? Has this happened to you? This is the human condition because humans are made to worship. Therefore, one of the kindest things God can do, if humans are made to worship, one of the kindest things God can do for us is to expose when we're worshiping something that is not meant to be worshiped. That is one of the most merciful things God can do to us, and that is what God is doing for Egypt. He is exposing their false idols, not so that they would be shamed, not so that they would just be separated from him, but that so many of them would turn and recognize, oh, okay, this is the one I've been looking for. I want you to think about one of the... uh, Incredible encounters that Jesus has with someone recorded in the gospel accounts, the the encounter of Jesus with the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, does anyone remember what he comes and asks of Jesus? He says, how do I, and remember, how do I inherit eternal life? Yep, you guys got it. Be confident. You guys know. Be confident. Be confident. Trust your giftings, right? So he says, how how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know the laws, you know the commands, do, do them all. And he says, I've done them. And then Jesus says to him, what? Go and do what? Sell everything you have and what? Come. Come and follow me. What's Jesus teaching? Is he, te- is he teaching salvation by works? No, though, contrary to the other 99% of scripture. That's clearly not what he's doing. He's teaching, he's teaching the young man something. He's teaching him that his, this young man worships what he owns. He worships his possession. His money is God. His money is his wallet. His money is his bank account. Even though this man is devout, even though this man is a man that prays, even though this man is a man of upstanding morals, even though this is a man of character, what he really worships is his possessions. And so Jesus does the kindest thing possible, and he exposes that idolatry. He dismantles that idol. That's his display of mercy. He's saying, your love of money, money is fine, but your love of it, love of it is blocking you from knowing me. So cut it down. Lay down the idol, turn to me. The money is not going to give you what you really want. I can actually satisfy. So he's dismantling my uh, idols. And so we see what God is doing here, God the Father is doing here, is, it's the nature of God. God the Son, Jesus, does it with the rich young ruler, the dismantling of idols. Now, this means that when we have those moments in our lives where our idols get dismantled, maybe you lose approval in a certain way or your career never takes off, when, when it's something that we cling to too tightly, we, we cling to it in such a way that we displace God with it. We put it in the place where God ought to be. When those things get dismantled, we need to see them in a new light. We need to understand that it is actually a sort of painful mercy that's happening to us. That is something that's difficult and something that's hard, but out of it, God is going to free us to know him more and to actually treat that thing as a created thing instead of as a thing to be bowed down to. 
So we need to understand when our idols get undercut, it's actually a painful mercy that God is giving us. Now, this doesn't mean don't hear this and think, oh, something bad happened in my life. It's a painful mercy, right? There's, just calm down, right? We're talking about our idols, right? We're talking about idols here, okay? So let me give you an example. One of my good friends it was a really good athlete in high school. Things look very promising, and you know where this goes. Um, the knee bends in ways that it should not bend, and things are in it are ripped to shreds, right? And ACL, MCL, all, all, everything that could go wrong in that area goes wrong for him. And so his response is anger, specifically anger towards God. And it's only years later when he's a college, in college this is, or high school, this is late in college when we talk about it, and he's at this point at that time where he says, Claude, I understand that my idea of myself, my sense of self was wrapped up in everything I did on the field. And it's only through this that I now understand that God is so much more, and I am so much more in him than what I do with a ball. And what we talk about is that I would not get that unless that was taken from me. It's a dismantling of an idol. This doesn't mean we go and celebrate when things go wrong, but we understand that within them, God can be working. So I want to talk with friends of church planting and, and, and who've planted churches, and it has just failed miserably. I don't really think a church plant can fail, but in their minds, they would say, no, it failed miserably. And there's just this shot to their ego that is painful to their family, that is painful to their friends, that is painful. But out of it, they talk about, man, that had to happen because I live for how people think of me. And now I have to realize what people think of me is not the final verdict over my life. But I had to fail publicly in order for me to get to that place. Do you, do you see it? Do you see the cutting down of our idols that actually frees us to rest in God and all that he has done for us? So there's a new perspective, perspective that you need to grasp that when God swings his axe of mercy at the root of one of your idols, it's a gift of painful mercy, not a display of his anger. You need to adopt a new perspective. This also requires that you have a sense and understanding of what are the idols that you have? What are the things that you would exalt as a sort of God in your life? Right? The, the people of Egypt had happy that they would turn to to be happy. Right? But we don't only want happiness. We, we certainly do that. But we also like things like control. We also things like, like things like approval. We also like things like power. We also love things like comfort. We also love things like success. And to like those things and to desire those things is not wrong, but what we do is we desire them inordinately. We want them in a way that we ought not to want them. We want them more than we want God himself. And when we do that, we set ourselves up for massive, massive chaos. So I want you to think about this. What are the idols that you cling to? 
They turn to happy to be happy. What do you turn to for approval? What do you turn to for happiness? What do you turn to for success? What do you turn to for power? What do you turn to for comfort in a way that says this thing is greater to me than God, who really is the one that offers me all of those things in himself? What are the idols? Because God wants to make himself known to you more deeply by dismantling those so that you can see him. So the Lord is making himself known to Egypt and to us by dismantling their idols for our good. But the Lord also is making himself known in this text through these plagues. He's making himself known by drawing hearts towards him through displaying justice and mercy. They're displaying justice and mercy. Uh, notice, notice this in, in verse 9, uh, 6, the plague of the livestock. Up until this point, we don't really see in the text that there is a distinction in terms of who the plagues affect. We, we, don't, we don't see that clearly. But in 9, 6, God makes it very clear that the, 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 uh, the death of the livestock, there's going to be a distinction between Israel's livestock and Egypt's livestock. There's going to be this, this kind of line um, in, in the sand here. And what God is doing as the plagues increase in intensity and severity, God is saying, I am judging Pharaoh and Egypt for their evil, and it is this judgment that will lead to mercy to Israel. So each plague, in a sense, is an act of judgment upon Egypt, but then also an invitation to Egypt to turn. So justice and mercy are shown in each of these plagues. That's why they increase in intensity. Because in one full swooped act, God is displaying justice. Let's not forget who Pharaoh is, right? If, if you're like, why is Pharaoh, why is God doing this to Pharaoh? Just read the first two chapters, right? There's justice being displayed in each plague, but at the same time, an invitation to turn. Justice and mercy are meeting. The Egyptians are getting lesson after lesson, picture after picture, that these false gods are actually no gods at all. These false gods are actually created things, gifts from the creator. They're getting an invitation to turn to him with each successing plague. God is displaying justice and mercy at the same time. Now think about this. Where else have we seen God display justice and mercy in one act? Where else has God displayed his perfect justice and his incredible mercy in one fell swoop? Is it not Christ? Right? How can we not hear about the justice and mercy of Jesus in one act, and, or in, of God in one act, and not have our hearts turned towards Christ? Where God in Christ, through the cross, God in Christ judges sin upon Jesus. He shows that he's just and righteous, but at the same time, he shows he's going to have mercy to ungodly people. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. Does this not lead us to Christ? Does this not remind us that God is so holy that he will give accountability and justice for sin, but he's so merciful that he also gives mercy to sinners? Each plague is a display of justice and mercy. And we begin to see it even with the magicians. When the third plague hits and they say, this is the finger of God. There's something happening in their hearts that's not happening in Pharaoh's hearts where they're able to see, yo, the God of the Hebrew slaves is the real deal. Later, we're going to see in, in 12, chapter 12, that some of the people of Egypt are actually going to come out with the people of Israel. 
So they're going to see that God is God and their idols are not, that Pharaoh is not to be bowed down to, but the Lord is the, is the God over all creation, the one true God, and they're going to follow. Justice and mercy is going to woo the hearts even of the people of Egypt. Because this is how God is making himself known. Right, think about that imaginary woman that we talked about when we opened. She goes to the Nile, she sacrifices, she prays, she, she trusts in all of her different gods, and she's heard about the God of the Hebrews, but it's been all talk, but now the plagues are beginning to unfold. Right? Think about the, the awe, the wonder, the sacred kind of trembling that this woman would have, where days earlier she's worshiping her gods, and then one day she goes to the Nile and says, what is this? He said, oh, did you hear? The God, of the, he- the God of the Hebrew slaves, he did this. Really? Yeah, but our magicians, our, our priests, the, 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 the intercessors for our gods, they did it too. Oh, okay. Next plague, the frogs. What is this? The God of the Hebrews. Really? Yeah, but our, our, our magicians did it as well. Oh, okay. Get me worried. The next, the gnats, the flies. Well, what is this? God of the Hebrews. Well, did, did our magicians pull this off as well? No, you know what they said? What? They said it was the finger of God. Really? And she sees plague after plague, idol after idol, undercut. She sees the livestock, the distinction that God makes between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. She sees justice and mercy. She sees that God is displaying justice and judgment upon Pharaoh for his evil. But at the same time, he's not bringing total destruction. And she sees picture after picture of her idols being undercut. And she says, you know what? I'm done with these idols. I gave you all this stuff and you guys didn't do anything. I might keep it secret right now, but you know who I'm rolling with? The God of the Hebrews. And this is why there is a mixed multitude that comes out of the Exodus. Because God has been making himself known through sign and wonders by dismantling the idols of the people. He's wooed them to himself, or he will, we'll see it in the chapters. He's wooing them to himself through a display of justice and mercy. This is exactly what God is doing for us on the cross. This is exactly what we see in Christ. This is why this is so important to see Jesus, because it's setting this table and this pattern for us. So take our imaginary Egyptian woman who would be wooed by this display of justice and mercy. I want to ask you, have you been wooed by the display of justice and mercy through Jesus Christ? Has your heart been shocked into worship?